You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothbeam. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by our other co-hosts, Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. Along with the typical Motley crew we usually force upon our listeners, we do have a guest on with us today. His name is Patrick Miller. Patrick is a pastor, author, and cultural commentator. He's written for Christianity Today, the Gospel Coalition, and other publications, and is the co-author of the forthcoming book, Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. It's a great title. Patrick offers weekly interviews and commentary on his own podcast, the same name of his book, Truth Over Tribe, and Patrick is a pastor at The Crossing in Columbia, Missouri. Patrick, welcome. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. I'm excited. Yeah, good. We're excited to have you. Um, Now, the way this is going to go is we just want to have an open conversation about a specific article that Niebuhr wrote on the topic of pacifism. And Patrick has graciously accepted the task of reading and preparing for today's show by looking over this article. And I do mean gracious because from what I understand, Niebuhr's take on violence is maybe a bit uh, different from Patrick. So I want to thank you for, I want to thank you for leaving perhaps your normal stomping grounds to engage with this weird fellow who is writing on the contours of Christian violence in the mid 20th century. Now, once we get into it, I do want to keep us within the scope of the article, but for now, I think, uh, I should say that we basically just know Patrick from Twitter. I've been following Patrick for about a year And we've had some exchanges here and there. But more recently, I believe Patrick has been working through the question of pacifism at his church. And so he's been opening questions up to the Twitter world, which is very courageous, um, in preparation for that church discussion. And this is is where I know both Zach and I have engaged with Patrick on this specific question of pacifism. And since we were uh, going through some of these issues on Love Thy Neighbor, and Patrick, you were going through them at your church, Zach and I thought it, it might be good to have our worlds collide a little bit and see what we've all been learning through our respective experiences. So before we get to the article, Patrick, if you don't mind, can you give us kind of a snapshot on where you are at the current moment regarding your exploration of the topic of pacifism? <laughs> I'm on a journey, man. Uh, I, I don't know if I've reached any destinations. And, you know, the dumbest thing to do is take a controversial topic and just open it up to the world on Twitter. I mean, nothing <laughs> can calm your nervous system, like asking people for their perspective on Christian nonviolence. When what was that like? Them. Because you engaged seemingly with just about everybody. That must yeah, be crazy. Know- I, I, well, and this is something I really appreciate about interacting with you in particular, Cliff, is we, we, we've been interacting for about a year now on Twitter, although you were you were interacting under a handle. So I, I didn't know who you were. It was just this guy with this Reinhold Niebuhr image as his avatar. I was like, wow, he's come back from the dead. He's interacting with me. This is so cool. 
but what I always appreciated about you was that while you and I don't see eye to eye on everything, uh, your interactions with me were always charitable and thought provoking, which oh, of course you. stands out in the Twitter universe <laughs> because uh, Twitter is anything uh, except for nonviolent, at least with words. <laughs> right, and, that's true. and so my hope in putting that up on the Twitter was that uh, I could uh, hopefully show people who didn't hold my view some charity and response and, and try to actually listen and hear their critiques uh, and bring those to bear in, in some stuff that we were putting together for our podcast and other places. So my personal journey, uh, I became a Christian when I was 19 and this is like 2006. So, you know, I, I think as millennials, we really have to kind of own our historical context. I've never seen a successful war. <laughs> you know, I didn't, I didn't watch the Berlin wall fall down. I mean, I was alive during it, but I, I, I've never seen a war that seemed to lead to a good place. You know, I was there for, you know, Operation Iraqi Freedom. And so, you know, I had friends who were graduating, they were going off to war and I was certainly not anti-war by any means. But when I became a Christian and I started reading the Sermon on the Mount, I started thinking, gosh, Jesus seems to say some really strong things about our ethic of violence. And you put that together with the uh, concurrent realization that what was happening in Iraq, that there really were no weapons of mass destruction, that this was kind of uh, military venturism. Uh, All those converged together to have a major influence on on me personally and moved me towards the side of Christian nonviolence. Um, Later on, I got kind of obsessed with the gun. Augustine. And of course, Augustine is really the first Christian to baptize the pagan theory of just war and begin to talk about it from a Christian perspective. And he really won me over to his cause. And it wasn't until seminary uh, years later that I was in an ethics class where my professor was trying to uh, defend just war. And I think maybe because I'm a contrarian by nature, I, I, he, he somehow in his defense convinced me that he was wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so I, 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 I flipped the second time. And, and now I've, I, I've, I'm sitting uh, rather uncomfortably, you know, maybe 55% or 60% in the camp of Christian nonviolence. I don't think there's an airtight argument on either side. There rarely are in ethics. And so I, I've really been interested in, in hearing from people like you. And I love reading, you know, Niebuhr's essay on this topic because they really challenged me personally. You know, I, I didn't read his article and think, well, gosh, I've got all the answers to the you know, profound questions that he's raising. Uh, I think these are challenging questions and they don't have easy answers. So that's where I'm at. That's me on my journey right now. Very cool. What? So you've been doing something at your church, and I think that's what the Twitter thing was about. This is coming through Zach, by the way. So I, I haven't yeah. confirmed that through you. But um, what caused your interest in that question now specifically? <laughs> that's great. I mean, I, 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 it's the war in Ukraine. I mean, I, I, I view current events as opportunities for you know theological and ethical improvisation. I think that's how Jesus and the Apostle Paul and the early disciples leaned into the problems that they faced. So they were constantly facing new contexts, new problems, and they had to figure out what's it look like to you know, play the melody of the kingdom of God over these different chords in this different place. And it's kind of this jazz thing of like, okay, it's going to sound different, but we're, 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 we're playing on the same notes. And so as this situation was unfolding in Ukraine, me personally, this was the first time I'd been faced with a war where it just seemed clear there's a good guy and there's a bad guy. Yeah. I mean, really in my lifetime, I cannot think, I mean, even think about things like in Syria, there were so many good guys and bad guys that it was so unclear that it was hard to, to pick sides on this. Or when you think about the war against terror, well, yes, there was maybe good guys and bad guys, but they, they weren't nation states. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. So it was hard to, you know, have a protracted war against them. So that, I that's really get, I, I don't want to get 
too far into the weeds yet, but even this war, it, may, it might seem like it's very clear, but these Russian soldiers really don't know what they're doing there. Are they really kind of the embodiment of evil that we think that they are? It's, uh-huh. It still seems extremely gray, right? Even in something that maybe Ukraine seem- soldiers, you know, who are maybe committing some war crimes. Right, right exactly. Yeah, possibly. treatment of POWs. Yeah, I mean, war is never, um, mm-hmm. it's never that clean. And we went through, last week we read Obama's um, Nobel Peace Prize speech. And, and he talks about how, you know, one of the tenets of a just war is that you minimize civilian deaths. And he says, and he said, even if you take the most ethically justifiable war in our nation's history, World War II, nobody questions whether or not that was justified. Still in that war, more civilians died than soldiers. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, even the just war fails, you know, miserably uh, on that account. But anyway, I mean, speaking of World War II, I, uh, if you don't, if you all don't mind, let's go ahead and get into our article. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1940, the world was holding its breath as it watched the Third Reich employ its devastating blitzkrieg across Europe, brutally toppling countries at a speed never before witnessed. The year prior, Nazi Germany took over Poland. By May of 1940, Germany had already rolled through France, already took it over. In September of that year, Nazi planes began bombing uh, London and parts of the United Kingdom. The United States was not yet uh, in the war and wouldn't be for another two years. Now, it is this same year that Reinhold Niebuhr picks up the pen and tries to put into words his turn from pacifism, and he does so writing the essay that we'll be discussing today. It's called Why the Christian Church is Not Pacifist. So I'll open us up with the first question, and this goes to anyone who wants to answer. Um, And I think it's an appropriate first question, not only given the various views represented on today's show, but it's right there in the very first paragraph. Niebuhr says, and I quote, whenever the actual historical situation sharpens the issue, which is kind of what we were just talking about this this war sharpening this issue. The debate whether the Christian church is or ought to be pacifist is carried on with fresh vigor, both inside and outside the Christian community. Those who are not pacifists seek to prove that pacifism is a heresy, while the pacifists contend, or at least imply, that the church's failure to espouse pacifism unanimously can only be interpreted as apostasy and must be attributed to its lack of courage or to its want of faith. We know what the historical situation was in Niebuhr's time that was sharpening this issue. To, uh, uh, to use his term, uh, you know, it, that war sharpened it. It made it clear in everybody's mind, this is something that we need to debate, and it split the sides. Today, I think we can all agree what sharpens the issue is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But what is it about these types of historical situations that suddenly creates kind of such vitriol between these two sides to the extent that one would accuse the other of apostasy or heresy? Well, I mean, for me, like, I think that the circumstance is definitely a part of it, right? It's the war, like you're saying. But I think it's any time that suddenly you are like faced with those possibilities. Like, like I said last week, you know, becoming a father was probably confronted me more with the idea of like, would I be a pacifist or would I not be a pacifist? You know, the idea of like, would someone break into my home and how would I respond to that? And I think it's almost 
I think Ukraine is really similar because I think that people in the West tend to see Western nations as a kind of a part of their overall, like as much as we wouldn't say they're part of our nation, we would say, we would say uh, conceptually they're part of this Western project, you know, whatever we want to call that. And we almost see it almost like it's that someone's breaking into our home, you know, not that Ukraine is our home, but we almost kind of see it that way. Um, it was all of a sudden like, oh, shoot, like this is a lot closer to home than like Syria or, and there's other reasons for that, underlying reasons. Um, probably there's some racial region, reasons and so on and so forth. But yeah, I mean, I think that a, a part of it is we think that they're breaking into our home in some ways Question. or our project. I wonder if, um, I wonder if this is fair, to, specifically to the pacifists. I wonder if Niebuhr's being fair here because from my experience the last few weeks, if anything, it seems like the pacifists that I've known, and Patrick, you might be able to speak to this more clearly. The pacifists I've known have actually been more empathetic toward violence while still maintaining their own position. I don't think that, I don't see many pacifists right now during this Russian invasion claiming apostasy for the Christians in Ukraine or here in the United States who are in favor of going to war. Well, I, I'm curious, Cliff, because I think you know uh, Ryan Niebuhr's historical context better than I do. One of the questions I found myself asking was, who are these pacifists that he's interacting with at his time? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, he, he mentions the Mennonites at one point, uh, it, but he actually kind of says favorable things <laughs> about them. So it seems to me that the pacifists that he has in, in view, you know, he talks about people who've kind of cast aside Paul as a, you know, some sort of uh, mis, misforming of the Jesus movement. And so I, I don't know who these people are, but I am curious, like, what, what would you say to that? Um, I would say that they are social gospel people. So these are okay. early it really starts early 20th century uh, liberalism. It's kind of what gave us YMCA's and Alcoholics Anonymous and stuff like that. Um, this movement that is trying to attain kind of a messianism in society through collective action. Um, it's basically yeah. uh, what liberalism today without Jesus, um, it, you know, it, and it has this very strong uh, hatred toward toward violence, and so it it really comes from that. So maybe we, we might be able to say, uh, yeah, it it comes from definitely the liberal wing. So I think oh, Niebuhr. So I was just say I think Niebuhr does provide a critique of this later on. We can talk about of the sort of like very very offhandedly the sort of liberals, but the tagline he always uses, I think, as part of the social gospel movement, is the law of love. Yes, that's a great. That point. is a thing. So that so that is like the thing he always refers back to: the law of love, and that man is a sinner. That dialect between the two. So yeah, just to put that out there for our listeners, that that this this central term is a is a term as a terminology that's really important to and to, to the and paper. to go along with Niebuhr's critique of them, they were a major target for him at the time. Mm -hmm. Was that these people really believed in kind of this i that this idealized state is attainable. And they yeah. kind of had streaks of utopianism and stuff. And um, I, th yeah. I think it's. I, I, I would say, that? well, I would say, even though, from what I understand, is it's not even those who would have necessarily been like, I mean, there are definitely those who were outspoken pacifists, but I think it's those who would have seen um, nonviolent resistance as the as the ultimate politic, basically. Like they would have seen it as like, okay, like this is what we need to, like, this is what we need to live out. Um, and this is the solution to the issues like Hitler and so on and so forth. Um, yeah. yeah. 
And this was so, a very so, popular view in his time. Yeah, it, well, and that, that's that's kind of why I was asking this question. You know, there's always a, a risk in trying to do very loose genealogy of ideas. Yeah. But it seems to me like when you think about the social gospel movement and even its genesis, you can go all the way back to the Puritans and their kind of uh, post-millennial aspirations. You know, we're going to build a city on a hill. We're going to establish God's kingdom on earth as in heaven. And those ideas obviously, you know, have children who have children who have children. And I've always thought that the social gospel was kind of, uh, you know, one of the many bastard children of, of the early Puritans and that post-millennial utopian hope that they had that they could change the world. And, and part of that is this fundamental baseline assumption that Christians will be in power, that Christians will be in the, in the halls and offices of power nationally. And of course this makes sense to them just because of their experience. And, and so it's not shocking to me that, that he would come across, you know, liberal Christians who kind of in their pursuit of making the kingdom on the Hill be America, therefore our nation can't go to war that he's going to have a lot of combat with them. But what, what I find also interesting, I'm curious, again, I don't know his work well enough, is that there also seems to be an alignment there. They both, the social gospel people and Ryan Niebuhr, seem to share the idea that they should expect that Christians are in the halls of power, that Christians are the ones who are deciding whether or not you go to war, that Christians are the ones who are in the military, who are generals, who are frontline soldiers. There's, there's a fundamental assumption that's happening there that I think they agree on. And I'm just curious, I mean, would, would Niebuhr agree with that? Yeah, I think he would. I think part part of the issue and we could as a student at ccu and amongst like my evangelical friends and you know college co-workers i guess um the, the scripture always stuck at the mind is first corinthians chapter one two where paul says that the power of god is christ this is christ displayed through christ crucified and that's the kind of uh revision of the power structures of the roman empire where you're sacrificing yourself and and so this implicitly brings aside a picture of a christian lifestyle as not participating in power structures or giving up power and so niebuhr pro provides a critique in this article where he says well in early ascetic christian communities you have these christians who actually understand the realities of evil are so the mystery of evil so far beyond their reach to comprehend and provide a solution so the only way to actually live out the law of love is to re go away from society but niebuhr brings this whole point in where he says you know power is an essential component in all society and in all relationships he even says it about in relationships between husbands and wives he, I think he makes a kind of coy remark where he says that I th um, uh, some some relationships could be better off with the equalizing of power between husbands and wives um, in, in the article. So power is, is a dynamic that's expressed in all of our daily livings. So it's not something we can get away from. And I don't know if that answers your question, but there's an essential component in there, I think, that is first made kind of distinct. Well, that power is essential, right? But part of my question in, in his context is, is also knowing that, you know, um, mainline denominations and, and mainline Christianity really reaches its high watermark in the late 50s, early 60s. And there's a significant decline afterwards. And again, there was this kind of a ceremonial deism that characterized, especially in the 50s. So this is kind of the post-World War era. Uh, but I, I think it was reflective of, of the work of people who I know were around Niebuhr. So I don't want to speak for him. But again, it was this kind of fundamental assumption of, of a union between God and state, Christians in power. And it, 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 it may, why, why I think this is the nub of a question that I want to ask is 
if, if, if you start by, by simply questioning that premise, <laughs> the premise of what is a Christian's role within the uh, halls of power? power. Uh, I, I wonder if you get away from this kind of caricature that he has at the beginning. It's why I don't, I don't see anybody who is uh, for just war as an apostate. But that's not how I'm orienting myself towards it, nor do I think most people I meet who are proponents of just war see me as a, <laughs> as a heretic for holding my position, well, because I don't think our argument is entirely <laughs> around, uh, uh, around nonviolence as much as it might actually be around the role of uh, Christians in the state. I mean, that's uh, that's going to take us um, down a rabbit hole, I think. <laughs> but let's go. Um, I think that, yes, there is an assumption there on Niebuhr's part that Christians are in control. I don't think that he would necessarily um, I don't think that Niebuhr would necessarily say it's good or bad to be in government um, or that Christians are in control or that we have Christians um, in, in power. He would say kind of to use. Heideggerian term, you've been thrown into this position. You have this position, whether you like it or not. Uh, Christians are in this position. And we can say the same thing today of there are Christians who have power, not only in our government, but in our communities. How are they using that power? And you can't, kind of going along with what Aaron was saying, you can't really escape that power. You can leave office, but you you still have some kind of power um, power of you know your own freedom and your rights and and how you use those things uh your own property um you can never completely escape uh that power and so to Niebuhr power is kind of ambiguous it's not good or bad so I would I'd be willing to to have that discussion about whether or not Christians should be in power at all is it some kind of a uh automatically corrupting force mm-hmm. Uh, that Christians should stay away from. Yeah, I would. I would also add. Just, I feel like there's a sense to go off, kind of build off what Cliff's saying. I think also, I would say, as I've encountered um, people on this issue, right? This issue of how do we deal with power and how do we deal with power over other people. Um, there's definitely a maybe not a you're an apostate or you're a heretic, but there's definitely a you you represent some lesser form of Christianity. Right. They maybe not go as far as to say that you're an apostate, but they would I definitely have received um, like it's almost like, yeah, it's just like, yeah, that's the easiest way to say it is just to say I've encountered people who definitely engage and say you're you represent some f- lesser form of Christianity. <laughs> well, I would, well, I, mean, I would I think that about all of you guys, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I would just point out, I think that the use of apostate and these terms Niebuhr does say in, in sections of this paper that the extreme forms of modern pacifism are heretical. But I think what he's trying to say is he's just co-opting that language in trying to show the sort of where this position takes you. Niebuhr um, is a scholastic, right? He looks at positions and tries to see where they take you. Um, and so he's says that the ethic of Jesus is absolutely normative in life. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Be not afraid. You know, do not have anxiety. But do you live up to these examples every day? No. So you are an apostate. You are heretical because you cannot live up to the fullness of the Christian ethic by virtue of your condition, which is living in sin. You're a sinful creature. So I think he, he's being really careful 
Um, I, I don't think he's trying to call anybody a pasta heretic. I think he's just saying, by your own definitions, this is what you lead yourself to if this is what you want to say. Is that fair enough to say, guys? Or Yeah, and I would say that's a classic Niebuhr strategy is that uh, it's like the idea of foolishness. He tries yeah. to say that like, we, we have to be both the fool and the wise man kind of deal. Yeah. Like that's a definitely a strategy he takes. So that's a good, that's a really good point, I think. Um, I think Cliff's first question about the ambiguity of power is really central to Niebuhr's um, philosophy and article here. Um, so I think we should return to that. Do you, so Patrick, do you want to respond to that? Do you have any thoughts or comments about how, how you read the paper uh, with that in yeah, mind? Yeah, no. Or- I, I do have I, I do have some thoughts here, and um, l- let me just say I, I I think everything you guys said about power, the the ambiguity around power, the fact that there's no such thing as escaping power, I would 100% agree. And I think one of the reasons why he has a hard time with the Mennonites, for example, he doesn't quite know what to do with them, is because they were attempting this. We're going to be entirely out of power, out of positions of power, and, and he critiques them rightly to say, no, it doesn't matter what you do, and whether it's in the family or it's in the community, you cannot escape power, and so. So, so I think that's totally right. And, and I don't want to advocate for a Anabaptist, Mennonite, Quaker position where you can't take office, you can't be involved in any power. That's that's not my goal. Mm-hmm. More of my question is to use Daniel as an example or Joseph as an example. If you step into power, there will be points where you draw lines. And there, those are ambiguities, right? I am positive Daniel and Joseph, if you were living in their life, there would be times where they weren't sure, is this the right thing or is this the wrong thing? And yet there were lines that they wouldn't cross. And we see that explicitly with uh, Daniel, you know, over and over again, he, he won't bow down and, and, and pray to the statue. Um, there's certain foods that he decides that he won't eat. But to the power point, so in other words, he embraces power, but up to, uh, up to a certain limit. One of my favorite parts this essay it's on page 42 i just thought this was spectacularly good it's in the middle of the middle paragraph but he says this he says justice is basically dependent upon a balance of power whenever an individual or a group or a nation possesses undue power and whenever this power is not checked by the possibility of a criticizing and resisting it it grows inordinate and then one paragraph down he says a balance of power is something different from and inferior to the harmony of love It's a basic condition of justice given the sinfulness of man. And what I liked about this is that he was highlighting the point saying, look, in a sinful Genesis three world, (laughs) there will be countervailing powers and those powers actually hold each other in check. They limit violence by having power. And and then he, and then he, what I love that is that he differentiates that kind of power, which produces a certain kind of just order and peace with the kind that I think he sees in the kingdom of God, which is a harmony of love. It's not countervailing powers entirely that are keeping people from killing each other. It's, it, it is, it is expressions of love that are doing it, but he's rightly acknowledging that in this world, in this life, it is countervailing powers that are uh, limiting violence. And, and so I, I want to affirm that my, my question then becomes if a Christian steps into these institutions, these states, which are fighting and warring and holding each other in these kind of critical, the question then becomes not will the states do that? I think the states will do that. I think I think the Bible is actually kind of paradoxical and agnostic about what states will do, right? Sometimes Babylon's a weapon in God's hand, <laughs> and sometimes Babylon's getting judged for what it did in God's hand. And we have a paradoxical relationship to the state where we step in, and there might be lines. And I, I suppose my question then becomes, yes, this form of justice exists. And yes, we do have to have nations that are holding each other in check, but are there lines that Christians cannot cross as they work within these governments? And I think that violence may be one of those lines that you cannot cross as a Christian. Well, then we would get into the question of what is violence because 
when yes. you have any <laughs> form of power, we're, we're talking not just the power, like if you work in the criminal justice system, you are working in a system that has implicit powers of, yeah, people, of restraining and confining human beings. That in itself is a violence or just even economic yeah. forms of violence. Um, even if you're working at the freaking, I don't know, the courthouse and you're, uh, you are a part of a system that is maybe crippling people uh, economically just because they, you know, ran a stop sign or something like that. I don't know. Uh, but you, yeah. all of a sudden we are now making value judgments about what is, what should I be a part of that could be harmful to a person economically, physically, whatever. Um, so yeah. I don't see any part in government that is completely immune from violence on some level, if you're using that. Yeah. Well, maybe the distinction to make is because it's when you enter government, but what about daily life? Because this is, I think, the distinction, because now you have to make certain decisions in a role that you've been assigned to. Um, Niebuhr does give the example that, you know, if, we're, if we just take non-resistance, because non-violent resistance and non-resistance are not really distinctively absolute. They, they kind of mean the same thing to Niebuhr. Um, but if we, he says, if, if we take the position of non-resistance, then we end up oddly pref preferring actions made by Goebbels, Nazi leader, over a general in an army who has more direct influence and uh, action in a, a field of war or whatever, right? Because he's just manipulating a, a mechanism, a system, making decisions. Now, I guess my, my question to Cliff and Zach and Patrick is that, you know, what is the difference between our daily individual lives, maybe private and public, and then entering into a public office and making decisions? Are they different or are they the same thing? Well, I think one of the things that connects what you're saying, in my mind, as I was reading this, one of the things that struck me that connects to what you're saying, he says, and what um, Patrick and Cliff were talking about, this is this line near the end, and he says, uh, if it is not possible to express a moral preference for the justice achieved in democratic societies in comparison with tyrannical societies, no historical preference has any meaning. I thought that was pretty striking, but I think in some ways it connects because that's a person that's both a personal preference and a preference. Uh, it's a personal preference in that, like, I, I need, I, I think we should allow people and promote people choosing the justice, which comes from democratic societies over tyrannical societies. But that democratic society's peace is achieved by with violent coercion. The violent coercion is a part of that uh, a democratic society. Um, does that make sense? No, I, I think it makes I think it makes great sense. And I, I think another section that he, again, is clarifying this same issue uh, is towards the top when he's talking about how Jesus has an absolute ethic of non-resistance. <laughs> then he goes on and says, uh, but it's not one of nonviolent resistance. He, and he, he actually asked a question that I'm surprised no one ever pushes me on <laughs> having these uh, dialogues. Um, he, he's saying, look, Jesus tells you not to resist any evil. He doesn't say anything about violent evil specifically. So when you start talking about nonviolent resistance, you've taken the larger scope of non-resistance, and now you've narrowed it down to one aspect of non-resistance, which is just violence. And, and this goes to, I think, your question, Cliff, which is you have to define violence. Like, is, Are there forms of resistance that aren't permitted 
for Christians. Now, I would actually contend that I think Niebuhr's got Jesus wrong on this. I do think Jesus says, do not resist an evil person. But I think when you look at the passages that he's pulling out of Exodus 21, these are passages that in context are talking about violence. It's talking about violence to slaves, violence to pregnant women. And it says, you've heard it said, life for life, eye for eye, burn for burn, right? And saying, how do you respond to violence in the community of Israel? And so then Jesus turns around and says, how do we respond to this in our kingdom? And he gives some examples of, you know, slapping the face, but then he presses it further and talks about going the extra mile. Now, here's why I think you can't make Jesus have a non-resist. This is why I don't think you can say that Jesus had an absolute non-resistance ethic is because of his own example. He resists the Pharisees in word. He resists when the people are trying to stone the woman. <laughs> he steps into the gap. He resists when he comes into the temple and drives out the, the traders and, and, and the merchants. Jesus shows us there are forms of resistance to evil that a Christian is permitted to use, but the one that he focuses on when he pulls from the Exodus passage does seem to me to be the violent use of force. Now, I, I, I want to say with you, like, hey, democracies are better. <laughs> you know, it's the worst form of government except for all the others out there. You know, like, <laughs> I will take it <laughs> absolutely over other forms. And, and I want us to participate. Again, my, my question just comes back to how far can you go in your participation? Can you take up the gun? Even if God gives the state the sword, has he given the Christian the sword with the state, right? <laughs> or is that one place where the Christian says, yeah, that's your state. I'm out though. Like I'm not in on, on, on this particular thing that you do. I'll do all the other stuff with you. So what I'm sensing here, Patrick, is we're not that different. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. really, it's really a spectrum question. And, and it really comes down to the, maybe that definition of violence. Uh, would you consider is economic violence a thing? Uh, you know, so the the definition of violence that I use uh, it comes from Preston Sprinkle, which comes downstream from other uh, ethicists and, and thinkers. Um, but the way he defines violence is is any act which. Uh, has the intention of destroying another person. So he's trying to do there is, is, is say it involves intentionality and it involves destruction. Now it leaves a wide uh, berth <laughs> for all different kinds of resistance. You can imagine someone, maybe uh, there's an old lady, she's walking across the street, a bus is going to hit her. I might run out and tackle her and break her hip in the process, but I saved her from the bus. Was that act violence? Well, no, because my intention wasn't to destroy her in the moment. Or the same thing with a doctor, right? When a doctor cuts you, is that violence? Well, no, it's not my intention to destroy you. And so again, I, th I think we can go back to these questions about intentionality, right? If a guy's got a gun and he's trying to, to shoot me, if I shove him to get out of the way, I'm not trying to destroy him. I'm just trying to escape. Is that violence? Now, I, I just want to say, if there's any weak point of the Christian nonviolence perspective, it is this issue. The definition of violence is so slippery and, you know, you can, you know, mold and manipulate it. And it's, it's kind of, in my opinion, the, uh, the mirror image of just war theory, which is the slipperiest ethical system I've ever heard of in my life. Any war can be a just war. I actually appreciate it. And everyone brings it up because it's such a disaster, in my opinion, mm -hmm. of ethics. And so I, I think you're asking me a question. That I don't know. I have a great answer for. I mean, I tried to give you a definition of violence, but you could press back and I'd say, yeah, you're right. That's, it is kind and of, that, it, it, it's, it's going to get difficult from there. And I, I'm even thinking about like, okay, you could not be intending to do harm, but you see something else that's better for the community. So in the long run, you, you, could, you could use the same uh, justification that a doctor might use for chemotherapy um, to attack Poland. You know, like this is going Unless to kill us in the long term. Hitler's petrified of the Soviets. Uh, we, we better get them before it's, it's going, we're going to hurt some people. Um, there's going to be pain and suffering, but in the long run, it's best for Germany. Uh, yeah. 
and well, would you say would you say this is also would you say it's on a sliding scale though of of of, of how you think about you know nonviolent resistance? It's like I think about it in four tiers. First tier is nonviolence and self defense. Like if I'm the only person at risk, will I use violence to defend myself? And I would say with Augustine, who was, you know, the inventor of Christian just war theory, who said, no, you do not use violence in self-defense. That, that, that is absolutely contrary to the Sermon on the Mount. And you could go one step further and say, what about neighbor defense? Like the guy coming in to kill my family or my next door neighbors, then can I use it? And maybe you have the lesser of two evil argument that you just said, right? Yeah, I shouldn't kill this guy to stop him, but it, that would be a lesser evil than letting him kill my family or my neighbors. And then, of course, I think the third layer is policing and how the state uses policing to coerce its own populace, which I think is a focal point of Romans 13. It's all about what happens inside the state. And then there's a fourth, which is military action. I'm only bringing these up to say Christian nonviolence. You could draw the line at any one of those stages and say that you're some form of a Christian nonviolent mm. advocate. Yeah, you can. And and it. this is a side. I, I mean, no disrespect for this, but when you get to that point, why call yourself that at all? Hmm. <laughs> Well, I, I, I think that's fair. I mean, so me, I'm, I'm full bore, right? I'll, I don't think we should be involved in any of those four things. I think the fuzziest area is policing. Um, and I say that because of Romans 13. Uh, the, the, if someone could convince me on any place where coercion seems biblical, I would say maybe it might actually be in policing. And I know that might sound strange and bizarre, and we could have that conversation. The only reason why I would say that we should say it is maybe twofold. I am, I'm, we're in a church context right now that has just lost its mind about violence. I've sat in rooms with pastors who made jokes on stage saying, I've got a gun in my house. Don't come into my house. And I don't know that you're there, because if you do, I'll shoot you because you're going to try and kill me. Yeah. Right. That's what yeah. I think you're going to do. I, I, I'm, I'm in text chains with Christians, deeply committed disciples of Jesus who are saying, I stand with Will Smith. I don't want to live in, literally, yeah. I don't want to live in a world with someone where someone can insult my wife and they don't get slapped. So, I'm like, so you find that there's some value in simply making the statement, I am, I am nonviolence, to kind of yeah. oppose uh, the glorification of violence in our society. Yeah. Like just that statement right there draws a line yeah. between us and them. I think that makes sense. I, I, you might find some solace in the, the last thing that Niebuhr says in the article, which we quoted last week yeah. um, uh, with Anthony. Niebuhr says, let's pull it up. He says... Um, it is a terrible thing to take a human life. The conflict between man and man and nation and nation is tragic. If there are men who declare that, no, no matter the, what the consequences, they cannot bring themselves to participate in the slaughter. The church ought to be able to say to the general community, we quite understand the scruple and respect it. It proceeds from the conviction that the trend of man is brotherhood and that the love, of the law, the love is the law of life. We who allow ourselves to be engaged in war need this testimony of the absolute is against us, lest we accept the war of the world as normative, lest we become callous to the horror of war, unless we forget the ambiguity of our own actions and motives and the risk we run of achieving no permanent good from this momentary anarchy in which we are involved. So, I mean, you know, I grew up in Cincinnati in evangelical context, and I heard all the same things as you, Patrick, with, you know, pastors and Christians from different political springs and you know being almost like in love with violence on a weird scale but it seems like Niebuhr is trying to temper our attitudes mm -hmm. towards it so I even had this question myself would even Niebuhr call it just war 
Yeah. Oh, interesting. I think because it seems like I don't he's think he saying yeah. I, I saying, necessary war. I like Bieber a lot yeah. more now that we've said yeah. that. Well, so Cause it, well, because he says this that the Christian faith ought to persuade us that political controversies are always conflicts between sinners and not between righteous men and sinners. Yeah. So even you know me in defense of somebody else, I'm I'm also a sinner. It's this dialectic Niebuhr builds between in the first por- portion of the article where he says, I am also I am crucified with Christ, but I am also the crucifier of Christ. Yeah. So I'm in this weird tension, this existential tension within myself, you know, where I'm like, I love God, but I'm also hating God on some <laughs> level, right? So well, I don't I- think he would call it just war, but I think one of the things that underlies this that I think is that Patrick probably was, you know, he hasn't heard this because we've been kind of talking about this over the last couple of weeks. Um, I, I think that what I see in Niebuhr when I'm reading this is that he still has a certain uh, uh, social gospel inside of him. He still thinks that we can create a more just society. And I think one of the things that I find really difficult about the, the nonviolence approach is I feel like they almost give up on the possibility of justice now. You know, what I mean, there's almost a there's almost a surrender of like, hey, and I feel like Niebuhr almost comes along, and this might be obviously a really negative character. I don't mean it that way. It's almost like Niebuhr to me comes along to me, and he says, hey, like, yes, we're we're you're gonna get you're gonna have to get dirty. Yes, you're going to have to ask for repentance, but we still have to pursue some form of justice. And trying to avoid that mm-hmm. is, uh, yeah, I mean. It, it, it's equally wrong. I mean, he's, he's really pushing back against people who try to avoid bringing about justice now through, even if it requires violent coercion. And um, you know what? I, this might be a good point here as well. There's a quote that Cornel West always brings up, right? And I think this is a good, probably assessment of maybe what Patrick is saying about people who are talking about, I have a pastor, I have a gun. They are using a very, very... Um, very vain form of justice it's very uh, neutral and i think Niebuhr says that justice is at his only justice soon deteriorates into something less than justice that's why justice needs to be rescued by something else namely love and so if if you're going to say an eye for an eye on a weird scale someone breaks into my house as i'm a pastor and i shoot the guy he's part of my congregation that's a really thin layer of justice you're working off of. <laughs> but it, if you're a Christian and, and you're working on, the, on the, the ethic of Jesus, there's something informing your idea of justice that is making it more colorful, more dynamic, and a bit more nuanced than, than what you'll probably have in these, you know, what a neighbor calls secular or forms of justice. But that, that's just my two cents. Yeah, I, so a, a, a few things, because, you know, we kind of got two things. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, no, it's great. Like one is the, well, let me just say this, and then it's a little bit response to what you're just saying. My other fear in the midst of this is that I think we are living in uh, an, inc- an incredibly self-expressive cultural moment. And Christians, especially evangelical Christians, love to talk about self-expression in terms of uh, sexuality and gender. Like that, that's, a, that's a hot topic conversation. And 
uh, that that you're going to have evangelicals speak very, very strongly. And I would say even clearly on that topic. Uh, what I don't hear a conversation around is what I would call uh, self-expressive militarism, <laughs> self-expressive uh, violence, where it seems that we're, again, norming this desire to follow my heart, to express myself, not just in my sexuality, but also in violence. And, and I think it's interesting even to look at the modern day progressive movement, which is slowly, in a way that we've never really seen on the left in a while, at least, warming up to violence as a legitimate means of bringing about uh, social justice. And, and I think it makes perfect sense because, again, it's self-expressive violence, right? It's violence in, in, in pursuit of my right and my ability to, whether it's live or express my being or be who I want to be. And so, again, like that's part of why I'm pressing back against this. I asked a while back, like, what, what do you think the problem, what do you always blame uh, as a problem with the world? I will admit I always blame self-expressive individualism. That's my, <laughs> my go-to. Uh, but that's one of my fears here as well, is that we might just be a little bit drunk and deluded uh, to what's driving, what, what's the actual animating thing behind our desire to kill the home intruder, to defend yeah. my neighbor, and maybe even to go to war or to police with a high level of coercion. Like how much of it is self-expression? That's an excellent point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think the, go ahead, sorry, go ahead, Cliff. I've talked enough, so. <laughs> um, I'm wondering if you think, Patrick, that there is a danger in kind of letting our devils define us a little bit. <laughs> and um, remember when I called myself a contrarian? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm nothing if not defined by my devil. <laughs> but there's, there's kind of a tendency in the history of Christianity. The next movement is always... <laughs> uh the enemy the of one. the next movement you know and and i i wonder if there is an evil in pacifism this this might sound crazy i wonder if there is an evil even in pacifism for instance i think i think that what gets lost a lot of times in this discussion is we always talk about these kind of active um actions and associated with violence is it possible that kind of what we don't do um let, let me put it this way does inaction or nonviolence absolve us from a perfect justice we could have established but didn't <laughs> i think that's a really valuable question I mean, you, you, like in my position remember i said it's not airtight and the, the things i ask myself questions about that's something i definitely ask myself a question about you know if if coercion and violence is required to establish a just order in society don't you have to do it out of love for, for, for your neighbor? But my, my only pushback, and you'll notice I've, I have not used the term pacifist throughout this, is because pacifist, just because of the sound of the word and its root, sounds a lot like being passive. And uh, there's definitely a tradition in pacifism of a certain kind of passivity towards uh, violence, maybe even a uh, attitude internationally of, you know, non-involvement. We're not going to be engaged, which is, by the way, you know, obviously what Niebuhr was responding to, the U.S. not wanting to be engaged with what was happening in Europe. And I would just press back, even if I'm wrong about whether or not Christians can use violence, I, I don't think that we should minimize the power of nonviolence in changing conversations and ending cycles of violence. Hmm. I mean, it's a simple reality that what Jesus said about living by the sword and dying by the sword isn't just an individual. I think, I think it describes you know, the last century of, you know, terrible bloodshed. And yet we can find movement after movement. There's ones everybody knows about, you know, Gandhi, and obviously you could talk about uh, Martin Luther King, but even, you know, in, in World War II, the most successful movement 
in rescuing Jews was in Bulgaria and it was a nonviolent movement. They rescued 48,000 Jews. Like we, we should wrestle with that. Uh, we can think about, uh, for example, the citizens of El Salvador who removed a militant dictator in 1944, again, through nonviolent means. You've got the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia. You've got the Revolution of the Candles in East Germany. You have, you have things in Lithuania, Lib Liberia. I mean, I can just keep going. Like there have been lots of nonviolent movements that have been incredibly successful. One of my all-time favorite ones was in Colombia where you had all these drug cartels and a guerrilla war warriors who were fighting with each other. And there was a village where these guerrilla warriors came in and they said, Hey, we're going to forgive you guys in this village. You just need to take up arms with us. So you got three choices. You take up arms with us and accept our forgiveness, or you don't take up arms with us and you don't take up arms with our enemies, in which case we'll probably kill you. Or you take up arms with your enemies and then we'll kill you with them. Right. Those are the three choices. And this peasant comes out and he says this speech, which is now has been memorized by, by, by citizens 30, 40 years later. And he says, look, we, 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 you can't forgive us for anything. We've never done any wrong to you. <laughs> And, and we refuse it. We just want to live in our village and grow our, and grow our, our, our vegetables. And that's what we want. And so we're not going to play this game. We refuse to pick sides. We won't be on their side. We won't be on your side. And interestingly, it opened up the, these, the only conversations that worked in demilitarizing Colombia during that 30 year period of violence. It all started in that village with nonviolence. So I'm just bringing these up because I just don't, I, I, I don't always know if people's conception of nonviolence is rooted in reality right? Like, do you know that nonviolence won't work? I, I'm not so sure. I, I think there's a place for it. Well, I, I think that's a good point, but it's important to note that that instance in Colombia didn't get rid of the problem. And, and well, no, but neither, neither did the violence that was happening between the state, the state enacted violence and the girl. Like, but is this, but is this a question of uh, violence or is it a question of policy that's maybe accompanied by a certain level of force. Well, a big, a big issue that Niebuhr uh, talks about is that justice is the approximation of love. It's not, uh, it's not going to be perfect. Um, there might have to be some force and justice. Uh, and it's, it's actually difficult to imagine a just world without some level of force. But what we have seen in uh, the places that have worked are not really questions about whether or not we should be violent or not, but what has created the most stability in the world has been the right levers of justice, creating the right levels of, of force and power and keeping this kind of equilibrium um, on the state level and al allowing for those conversations and those debates to play out in a system that is cradled um, by a, a working order and that there is kind of an invisible kind of force um, underneath uh, the machinery of the United States governance, you know, um, that if, if we lifted it, you know, we might not have uh, these kinds of uh, this ability yeah. to have these kinds of conversations. No, and again, that's the other question I often get faced with is like, aren't you living under the umbrella, <laughs> the protective umbrella of those who are willing to use force to protect, you know, your rights and your freedom. And again, it's almost like, is this a luxury belief? And I, I really have to wrestle with that because here's, here's, yeah. here's a fact. I, I am not worried about violence in my life, not in the neighborhood I live in, not in the city that I live in, not in the nation that I'm a part of it. Is, so I can sit here and say all I want. I'm a Christian. I'm an advocate of Christian nonviolence. That costs me nothing zero zip. <laughs> and I know that, you know, it doesn't mean I'm wrong, but I have to wrestle with it. You know, again, 
if, if you just to give my position where it stands, look, I'm not saying that nations shouldn't actually war and wage warfare against nations. I'm not saying that that justice isn't upheld by these by these powers. It seems to me as though God is allowing these nations to be at war with one another and to hold each other in check through this kind of, uh, you know, not harmony of love, but like Niebuhr said, through through a balancing of power, which is a different kind of justice. My fundamental question, though, again, is. Can what's the level at which Christians can participate in that, right? There's a reason why Romans 13 comes after Romans 12, where Paul says, you don't do this, right? You love your enemies. You don't carry out violence. You let God do that. And you're like, well, how does God do that? And in Romans 13, he says, he's got these nations that do it for him. Right. So, but that, that's the question. Like, is that me or is that them? That it space between Romans 12 and 13 is a little bit more ambiguous now because we are born with certain rights and, and we're born with yes. the ability to vote and to run for office. Um, we, I mean, if you take a look around, who rules this nation is not necessarily the president. It's not necessarily Congress. These people are kind of at, at the mercy of our vote and public perception. So we're all kind of weirdly involved in this system now where we are kind of under Romans 12, but we're kind of, we have a say, you know, we have a say about how how to Romans 13, you know? <laughs> and Augustine would agree with you. This is why Augustine yeah. moved towards just wars. He said, look, our context changed. He, I mean, he was pretty frank. I mean, I'm, I'm now, more yeah. crass than he should have than, than he did. But it's almost like, look, times are a changing. And so must our ethics. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm still wrestling at the tension of must they? <laughs> May I make an observation real quick? I, I, it's just something that you said, Patrick, and I think maybe the course for our discussion as well. When we began our discussion, we were talking about the ethics of Jesus. Yeah. And pacifists really, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm Christian as well. We're all Christians here, I guess. Maybe, maybe not Zach. Zach, are you a Christian? I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, I've been wondering that beard, man, too long. Um, yeah. Anyway, so we begin our discussion between not uh, uh, pacifism and Christian violence with the ethics of Jesus. It, it's absolutism. It's normative character and nature. But now we've changed our discussion to, and I think maybe Cliff's question about is it a policy difference, but now you're talking about the with your examples you've given the utility of nonviolence. Mm -hmm. So you've tried to, your, your earlier questions were, can I be in these positions and make these decisions? But now you've removed yourself from those positions, you know, theoretically, and now you're commenting on the utility of nonviolence mm -hmm. in those situations. So it's, it's like, you're not almost even commenting as a Christian at this point, but you're providing a political commentary. So aren't you already in the business of participating in this violent, forceful situation by inserting your comments? That Because that is the issue with, I mean, both Christian pacifism. Is it a complete removal from society, the state? Or how do you account for the ambiguity of living within this, this sort of social network we live in as a Christian who, who, who holds that view? I, I think that's a great question, you know, and, and I, and I want to start by saying, I think that faithfulness to the ethic of Jesus is top priority. Yep. Um, and then we can talk about 
utility, what works, what doesn't work. Part of the reason why I often say those things is because I found that the conversation moves very quickly from Jesus's words, because frankly, that, those are losing grounds for your position <laughs> um, yeah. to, to the utility question, right? Like someone else saying, well, how else? And Niebuhr does it, right? He's like, he, he, mm-hmm. he, he flat out mocks people who think, you know, he says, oh, 30% of England refuses to go to war and that's going to break Hitler's heart. And so, and so that's why he's not going to keep dropping bombs over London, right? Yeah. He mocks it, right? And so he's he's mocking the position as 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 something that does not have utility. That's part of his point. And so I, I bring up utility just to say, hey, I think we should be a little slower to 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 question that. Also, B though. I'm different than Niebuhr because I don't expect Christians to always be, I'm a chastened evangelical who has watched Donald Trump ascend, who's watched people I personally know enter into halls of of power. And and I've seen the way it corrupts people. And so so I I am in a different position too, because I'm willing to say, yeah, states are going to do that, but they'll live by the sword and die by the sword. Babylon rises, Babylon falls. So be it. Our role is to be faithful in the midst of it. Now you're asking a great question about my participation. And of course I've drawn lines. Like I will not use a certain form of violence. That's where I draw the line but of course i am part and parcel of it right and and i don't know where those lines are right like if i'm in the military providing medical service am i now you know uh, a part of what's happening because i'm healing soldiers who are then going to go back (laughs) into war like those kinds of questions are really important i often think it's easy to to change the topic to to get clarity so for example you could ask the question should should christians be you know uh, actors on on the game of thrones set you know where they're going to have you know pornographic sex scenes right you want to be an actor but like are there line, I would say, yes, you should be in Hollywood. You should be, or should you be a cinematographer? Yes, you should be behind the camera filming, but are there lines that you won't cross, right? And will you have to be creative in the moment? Like maybe you have to say, hey, my buddy's coming in. You can give him my salary for these episodes so he can do it, but I can't do this one thing. And of course, someone could critique that person and say, by even being a part of it, you're, 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 you're caught up in it. And that would be kind of more of the Quaker Mennonite approach. And I'm disagreeing with that, right? Like I'm trying to take this kind of tension laden position of saying be involved but have lines and my lines might be yeah. wrong yeah and i think Niebuhr's point I, I, is I would, that you can't not be involved you're already involved. yeah i, I was yeah. about to say i think that i think that Niebuhr, if any if he had whores anything from this um it's inaction right at the near the end of the thing he says the fact is that we might as well dispense with the christian faith entirely if it is our conviction that we can act in history only if we are guiltless you know what i mean it's like it's a because you know that's the common that's the common belief right we need to stay out of it because it will like stain us we'll be stained yeah. by these positions we'll be uh overcome by their um evil and mm-hmm. but so almost it's almost like not about utility as much i mean i know that he brings in utility but i think over and over again what he's hitting on is the people who want to take inaction towards these issues um mm-hmm. even more than i think he's pushing back against even even more than he does nonviolent resistance i think he's pushing back against those who want to just stay out of the fray uh, they want to just like, hey, like if, if I just don't occupy these spaces, I will remain guiltless. But Niebuhr's continually coming back and saying, we're all yeah. guilty. You know, like, you, yep. you, and evangelicals are notorious for doing this yeah. on a lot of issues. You <laughs> know what I mean? Like, that, yeah. So that's why I would say, like, whilst I appreciate the example, Patrick, I, I think it's a quite uh, maybe uh, not not entirely um, comparable pleasure in sex and pleasure in war probably lead to a different psyches <laughs> you know if someone's having a like having a great time killing people in war it might not be the most savory person to be with um but uh you know I, that's okay, just good why i covered but a good point yeah. uh yeah and i think i think zach was right that 
I think Niebuhr is after the people who live kind of under the illusion that they can somehow escape this and not be a part of it. When in reality, I think Cornell West makes the point that in Democracy Matters that uh, we are continually benefiting from the spoils of war in this country, um, our entire lives uh, are in some way connected to not only war, but in, uh, enslavement, um, sweatshops. Um, there's there's a, a litany of, of evils that we are attached to just by the things that we buy. Um, you cannot completely detach yourself from the evils of this world and stand outside of them and then and then pretend that you are advocating for this pure, um, for this pure ethic that you are somehow above it all. And by simply not like voting for the pro-peace candidate, that somehow absolves you. Um, it somehow takes you out of that context. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but that's kind of illusion. Um, so Patrick, uh, any, any last words? You, you, you got anything you want to plug or anything like that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, my, my co-host on Truth Over Tribe, his name's Keith Simon, and he vehemently disagrees with me on this subject. We've spent years now arguing over this. Maybe and we so, should have him on. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm actually going to recommend this to him, right? Because um, a lot of what you're saying in terms of... Uh, a lot of what you're saying in terms of the critique of, of me, hey, you're, you're being pure church guy. You're, you're being unrealistic about how the world uh, is, is uh, intersecting with itself and your, and your actual inability to escape from, from guilt and on all different levels, uh, not just violence. He would really agree with that. And that's been one of his biggest pushbacks to me. But we are releasing in one week a little three-part series where him and I are arguing <laughs> over a just war theory. So not what we've even talked about on here, which is his position and uh, Christian nonviolence. So that, you know, if people want to hear more on that, they can definitely go uh, check that out uh, and, and listen to the podcast, Truth Over Tribe. You know, uh, my closing thought is just to tell you guys uh, that I'm really thankful. I'm thankful for uh, getting to read this article. I don't think I would have read it otherwise. Um, I found Niebuhr uh, thought-inspiring and challenging in a great way. He said things that made me, you know, want to hit the table and write big no next to it. And other things like, wow, that's really challenging. That's really good. Uh, and I think that's always the sign of a, of a, of a bright, brilliant mind that is, uh, I, I hope, being tuned by God's spirit. So uh, thanks for having me on the show. It's been fun talking to you guys and, and learning from you all and hearing your challenges, because I think they were all uh, very good, thoughtful challenges that someone in my position needs to consider. Good. And, and thank you, Pat, uh, Patrick, yeah. for the lively, engaging um, discussion. You've given us a lot to think about today. Um, and you're, you're coming in the context of us really uh, diving into this issue the last uh, few weeks. So yeah, the, it, it, it's refreshing to hear. I, I think that you have, uh, you bring a lot of empathy and sympathy into the conversation. So I think it's a lot easier for us to find kind of a middle ground on things and, to worry about. So thank you. And I would just add, like, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, we just contact you on Twitter. So that's, you know, I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. And uh, I also love that you just, you bring that kind of consistent, like, you know, there's, there's that kind of, I love Matthew five. That's I read that. And that's what caused me to become a Christian, that idealism towards like, Hey, like Jesus says, don't be violent. You know, that, that kind of haunts me. It's haunting me all the time. And you embody that when you're talking about it, you're like, Hey, but Jesus said this, you know what I mean? You're like, uh, but let's come back around to what Jesus said. And I think that's, uh, yeah. it's really good. Cause I tend to be more pragmatic in my Older Aaron, years. Aaron shared a passage last week because we talked to a pacifist and um, 
I think it was at the end of this article, right, Aaron? Um, yeah, yeah. Was talking read. about Niebuhr was talking about the importance of of pacifists in the conversation. Like we need, like even people who are okay with using violence uh, to a certain degree, or not okay with it, but see it as necessary. Sometimes we still need kind of the uh, the nonviolent yeah. element of Christianity to constantly keep that other uh, in check. Yeah, and I've really embraced the fact, by the way, that, you know, maybe my role in God's kingdom is to be the antithesis to the larger thesis in our Christian culture, and that whatever synthesis comes out of that um, might make us all a lot better in the end. And so, you know, if I get to the renewed creation and, you know, talking with resurrected Jesus, and he says, yeah, you really blew that, but I'm glad you blew it, and here's why. I I, I can live with that. Very good. Well, uh yeah again thanks uh patrick and um and we want to thank you the listener uh for sticking it out with us once again next week we'll be getting getting into niebuhr's life uh, much more directly than what we've been doing we'll explore his personal biography and the uh evolution of his thought a bit as we turn to the work of of gary dorian so um and we will be interviewing gary dorian i think in like a month or something like that um so uh keep a lookout for for that episode If you like what you're hearing, please like or subscribe, give us a good rating, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at LoveThyNeighbor for news and updates. Until next time, take care, everyone, and stay safe out there.